Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and on this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Today is part two of our two-part mini-series, Exploring the Oresteia. If you have not heard part one of this mini-series, we would suggest that you go back. You can hit pause or stop here, go back, listen to the first one, and get the context and Dr. Fleming's explanation of the first play, or exploration, I should say, we didn't get into the full explanation yet. And that will better prepare you to do that. Or, or if you're the sort that doesn't follow directions, I suppose you can just keep listening now and, and go back later. Um, Dr. Fleming, when we, when we last spoke, we were talking about liturgy and chorus and strange eating rituals. Uh, this second play, I think you and I have spoken about it. There's not really that much that happens. It, it feels like, in in a sense, an opera. There's there's all of this choral exchange. There's a few things that happen, but it's the least. It's almost the second movement of a of a of a of a three part musical piece where the middle the middle part is supposed to get you from the first movement to the third movement. Can you tell us about this choral exchange and why it's set up this way? Well, uh, firstly, uh, I think it is important to note that the most important action of the Oresteia does take place in this second play, the Coifery, the, the libation bearers. The heart of the play, of the, of the trilogy, is the uh, killing of Clytemnestra. And so... This is a very uh, sacral drama. It's true, and it's and it and it tends to be um, a very ritualistic, ritualized drama. But the the center event of the entire work uh, takes place here because it's called the Aristia for a reason. The the uh, Orestes' revenge for his father was one of the great stories. We are in Greek, uh, in Greek mythology, in Greek tradition. We're we are given uh, we're given a, a a little bit of it uh, throughout the Odyssey. It's a kind of running theme in the Odyssey that um, Clytemnestra was a bad wife. What is Odysseus' wife going to be like? Uh, Agamemnon had a bad wife, but his son uh, took revenge for him. Although there, the main emphasis is the killing of Aegisthus. And so what will Telemachus do? So this is really, uh, it, uh, in this play, Aeschylus is grappling with uh, something uh, very central and very sacred uh, to the Greek religious and mythological tradition. And therefore, uh, uh, it becomes, uh, it's all the more important for him, therefore, to set it as a kind of, it's almost like an Eskimo song duel, I think is one of the things you, you're, you're getting at in your question. So much of it is ritualistic uh, choral work. For example, much of the play, uh, of the first part of the play, is uh, cast in the form of a kommos. A kommos means literally a beating. That is because people, it's a, it's a ritual lament. It's not just a threnody, not just a lamentation, but it's a funeral lament in which the people act out their grief and they, and they, and they ceremonially beat their chest. Like, like, by the way, I had a Greek, 
Greek funeral today. All the old ladies dressed in black are, are ripping their hair and, and uh, carrying on. Well, maybe not so much as they, they might once have done. So, yes, it is. On the one hand, it has the one most important dramatic scene in the three plays. But on the other hand, the scene is presented, as I said earlier, liturgically or a, a, as a religious ceremony. Part of this is because the uh, Greeks had a horror of acting out violence. They, you couldn't show sex on the stage. You didn't show even people kissing, really. And even more so, you were you could not. There was a horror of depicting violence. Well, why should this be so? I've had this discussion with some of our students and friends online, and they think going to see, uh, say, a, a, a movie, a, a, a Mel Gibson movie, in which a couple of thousand people are killed in the course of the movie, that's all right because it's in a good cause. It's a, it's a moral framework. I remind them that that's exactly what people used to say about pornographic novels. Well, it's all it's it's important to show this to show either these people are depraved or it works out. It has a moral purpose in the end. A Greek would have laughed at you and said, look, these are free male citizens on the stage wearing masks. In putting on the mask, they are putting on the identity of the character they're representing. It would be incredibly degrading for the actor, who is, after all, not a professional. He's just your next door neighbor. It's degrading to the actor and to the audience to take part in a kind of ritual murder. And so murders had to, killings had to be uh, off stage. And so therefore, you have to find a different kind of ways of making it dramatic. You cannot, you know, even in Shakespeare, you get, I mean, by the end of Hamlet, the stage is littered with dead bodies. Well, I'm wondering, Dr. Fleming, going back to the idea of liturgy, with this singing, again, this is my my Catholic brain saying here is we have singing in the divine office. Are we leading up to a religious killing? Is this a holy killing that needs to be preceded by holy singing? Well, it is certainly a holy killing. And this is, of course, the, the part of the dilemma of the play. Um, the characters in this family are caught in a web, a web such as the net in which Agamemnon is enmeshed before he is murdered in his bath. And the, they are involved in a web of murder and counter-murder. There's killing and revenge killing and revenge for revenge killing. Poor Orestes is at the heart of it. Uh, his mother, feeling justification, uh, has murdered his father, the great king of Mycenae, because he had sacrificed her daughter, his daughter, in what was, after all, a religious ritual, which would seem to have been commanded by the gods so that the expedition against Troy could take place. Orestes, uh, who has been living in exile with people who are actually kinfolk, that, that stresses, that point is not really made in the Aristia, but uh, Strophius uh, and Pylades are his relations. Um, it, it is his duty. He has inherited the duty. He is the next of kin of Agamemnon. It is his duty to uh, to kill the person who has killed his father. Now, killing Aegisthus is not a problem. 
because you know he is a he's a cousin and he has a, but he is not not so close a kin that he's not really the pro, the primary thing there is just killing the killer, but in killing his mother, you know how can this be right? And so the answer is because Apollo tells him he has to do it. Now in the Agamemnon, we've seen that there is the succession of the rulers in uh, in Argos Mycenae, the succession of these rulers from from Pelops to e, to uh, Atreus and Thyestes to uh, to Agamemnon to Aegisthus. This has been a series of of, uh, of violence, violence punctuated by a strange. Uh, uh, sexual behavior. In the myth, you know, uh, Thyestes is the product of an incestuous relationship between, I'm sorry, Aegisthus is the product of an incestuous relationship between uh, between uh, Thyestes and his own daughter, whom he was told, he, because he was told he had to have relations with the first woman he saw. And it, it turned out, he didn't know it, but it turned out to be his daughter. So everything is, so the the, the world is disordered. And, I, and by the way, I think Agamemnon, I think Aeschylus rather, expects us to know that. So we, we have poor Orestes in this, in this strange condition. His mother, acting more like a man than a woman, has murdered the king and her husband and Orestes' father. But she is also Orestes' mother. And how can it possibly be right for a son, for whatever reason, to kill his mother. It's similar. It's a little bit similar, deeper, but somewhat similar to uh, Hamlet, where Hamlet uh, knows, or he, he strongly believes, and in fact he's correct, that his uncle Claudius has murdered the, the elder Hamlet, and he had probably, with the complicity or knowledge, or at least some acquiescence, on the part of Gertrude, the queen. Now, this is debatable, but clearly, uh, clearly Hamlet uh, is deeply suspicious. Now, you can't go that far on the on a, in Elizabethan stage, but for the Greeks, who uh, any anything within their religious tradition is possible, and since this is the story, Aeschylus has to find a way. Now, just as we have this cycle of violence in the kingship, we have a cycle of violence in the in the divine world. Uh, the 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 first king of the gods has been castrated and overthrown by his his son, Cronos, uh, and that son has been uh, displaced by Zeus and the Olympians. So there is a new order in the world, and the, this this order is more rational, more just. More peaceful, but uh, how can how can we reconcile this new order with the old order? Because you can't simply overturn things, and so this is so everything of of that type is uh, summed up in Orestes' dilemma. He doesn't know what to do. Is Orestes in a similar dilemma to Abraham with the killing of Isaac? That same cognitive dissonance, uh, he's my son, I'm not supposed to kill him, but God tells me I'm supposed to kill him, so I'm going to lift up this, I'm going to lift up my knife, and, and the only thing that stops and intervenes is, is God intervenes himself. So uh, is, is Orestes caught in the same sort of thing where, uh, well, Apollo told me to do it, I have to do it. There's, there's, there's not really a sense of choice. Yes, well, he has a, a, a little bit more choice than Abraham, uh, but... Uh, 
uh, it is, and uh, because for one thing, the, the, the Greeks aren't a polygamous society. You can't just run around producing <laughs> children right and left. But, uh, and the Greek gods are by no means as omnipotent as, as, the, as the god of the Old Testament. There are many gods. They have conflicting wills. And, and as we can see, you know, the Furies are, are, are divine. Uh, Athena is divine. Apollo is divine. We have various forces. But nonetheless, your point is exactly right. He, the deciding factor when he comes to kill her, he says, can this be right? And his friend Pylades, the first third character to speak in, a, in an extant Greek tragedy, Pylades says, uh, you must obey the god. Because the god, it's not only because Apollo is powerful. That's, that's part of it. But far more important is because Apollo and Zeus and Athena represent the highest order of truth and justice known to the Greek world. And therefore, to defy them would be to make yourself uh, unworthy of their attention. Well, at the very heart of this, then, is is blood revenge. And, and I'm in Hungary at the moment, so I'm not that far from Montenegro. And, and you're recording in Illinois, which, which isn't that far from where the Hatfields and the McCoys are. So... We both have different uh, uh, anchors to talk about blood revenge. Can you can you go into either? You can go into the American Sorry. example of blood revenge, or you can go into Montenegro and and, and the ancient blood feuds, uh, and and give us some context. Yes, the question is blood revenge. Blood revenge is a universal uh, institution in human society. I've written about it in terms of uh, Montenegro Kurna uh, Osvet, the, 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 the necessity of taking blood for blood. This, and it has certainly been a, a lively tradition in the United States. Blood feuds like the Hatfield and McCoy feud or the Sutton Taylor feud in Texas. Uh, they, um, they are, these blood feuds are as characteristic of 19th century America and early 20th century even as they are of, uh, of the Balkans or of the Arab world. So this is certainly, uh, something which we also see in the Old Testament. In the earliest books of the Old Testament, blood revenge is the only form of justice for homicide. A, uh, if a man has been killed and the family, the next of kin and uh, will or, or the avenger of blood have the obligation, not the right, but the obligation to go and take blood from the man who shed the blood. Now, as the as uh, Jewish law developed, if the man was was innocent, or acted in self-defense or it was an accident, he could take refuge in a city of refuge where they would judge the case. If they found that he was guilty of a willful homicide, they would expel him and the avenger of blood would then kill him. But when uh, all of the passages, which are so misinterpreted by uh, theologians today, where vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. The whole point is that vengeance is of divine ordination and vengeance in, in, in the world of, of Christ and the apostles a vengeance, the power of vengeance was embodied in the Roman Empire, whose emperor and whose agents were authorized to carry out this act of divine revenge. There's nothing wrong with revenge, per se, in the Bible. This is, this is constantly misunderstood. Uh, 
Revenge is a divine, divinely instituted form of justice for homicide. So the the Greek world has undergone a uh, had undergone by then a, a a similar evolution, and there was, you know, more more to it than uh, simply a blood for blood because uh, motivation was ta- had to take had to take uh, be taken into account. However, however, a man who shed blood unintentionally was still polluted, and still and his pollution polluted the society around him. In Sophocles' Oedipus, very famously, a, a plague affects the city, uh, Thebes, because a, the murderer of the king is at large. And so the whole community is subjected to plague. And in, in Athens, at in the time of Aeschylus, if a goat butted a man, and accidentally caused his death, the goat had to be put to death in a ritual execution. If a roof tile fell off a building and killed a man, hit him in the head, the roof tile had to be cast into the sea with a curse on it. So quite apart from the aspects of, uh, of Greek law, which were developed and rational and, and humane, they never eliminated the notion that the shedding of blood was itself a horrifying, uh, a horrifying act, a horrifying incident that ha- had to be a- accounted for. And so all of these acts of, of blood, whether they're just or not, in the course of the Aristia, the, the, the reality of the bloodshed is the first thing that has to be taken into account. Now, for a Montenegrin, for example, who had a whose relative was uh, was murdered, a Montenegrin, it is said, couldn't sleep. Because the sense he was haunted by nightmares, haunted by an anxiety, an anxiety that could only be relieved when he took vengeance. And we see precisely this kind of language used throughout this play. That is, the, the heart is dripping blood. There, there are fantasies at night. Orestes and his family are beset by uh, these 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 demons that come from the, the the blood of a murdered person, but it it is also it is a psychic burden which they are bearing, and this is being borne not just by Orestes but by his sister Electra, who who has to after all live with her father's murderers in the in the palace. So the the Greeks never got over the centrality of blood, and by the way, they never made the mistake we did. That is in Western law of saying that the murder victim's family has no say in what happens, because under Athenian law, if uh, your father is murdered, it's up to you or his brothers to take him to court. In fact, even to lay hands on him and arrest him. The 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 uh, the legal arena is only that an arena in which the two parties fight it out in front of a jury. This replaces the uh, actual uh, need of of the victims next of kin to take the to take vengeance himself but he has to initiate this and if no one initiates the uh, the prosecution for murder there is no prosecution and so in the case of a uh, a slave only the owner of the slave only the master can initiate in the case of a foreigner he must have a kind of formal friend in athens to un- undertake it 
So they never got rid of this ba- very basic notion that if you kill a member of my family, the family itself is damaged and the community is polluted uh, and suffers until justice can be done. Well, that takes us back to Hamlet and the idea of something being rotten in the state of Denmark. Indeed. And we see that there are signs that things are not quite right, that when the king is not aligned, uh, either morally or spiritually, that it has a, a, it casts a pall on the, all of the kingdom. Yes, yes. We're, we're very far from those times, uh, Dr. Fleming, alas. <laughs> well, um, you know, there are better ways of handling these things than through blood revenge. But... Uh, that the the notion that underlies these customs that in other words that your fa- your family connection imposes not just not just the right to inherit property from your father but also to be- make sure he's buried properly and that if he's been murdered revenge has to be taken uh this was uh, not a good idea for us to escape from this what seems to us now a primitive notion but i think a necessary notion if you're going to have a, a genuinely just society. Because today in our world, you know, somebody comes and he breaks into your house and maybe uh, sexually molests your wife and children, murders them, and uh, he gets 10 years in the loony bin. Or if he is, if you're lucky to love enough to live in the state of Texas and he gets the death penalty, you find the whole world, including uh, the pope, interceding on his behalf without understanding or caring one whit about what has happened to this poor family. So we have this psychological level uh, that is accompanying the, the, the well-known cultural level of revenge. So can you get us, we're moving now from the second play um, into the, we're bridging into the third play, but before we do that, uh, we need to talk a little bit more about the interaction between Orestes, Aegisthus, and, Cly- and Clytemnestra. Yes, you know, Orestes is in a pretty bad way. I mean, after all, this is his mother, no matter how awful she is. And she, she was presented in the first play as uh, magnificent, you know, because she, in this, because of, you know, she, she, she took on the role of a man. And this is, uh, this is, from the Greek perspective, a monstrosity. But there is something very noble. In this play, when she is pleading for her life, by the way, her first move is to grab is to grab uh, uh, an instrument of slaughter. She has some sort of meat axe which she's going to protect herself with, and uh, she is. This is not uh, this is not a, a defenseless uh, little creature. Uh, but her final uh, her her appeals to her son are one. She 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 points to the breast that suckled him. How how can you how can you kill your mother? And but two, she finally says, son, it is hard for a woman to be without a man. In other words, she admits that her uh, sexual appetite, her desire for Aegisthus played a role. And it's at that point that for a Greek audience, all sympathy whatsoever is lost. She simply now has turned, she now has put herself in the position of being a wanton woman. She's trailer trash who has murdered her husband out of sexual desire. And similarly, Agamemnon has turned from being a man who has uh, destroyed Troy, burned the temples, done all sorts of terrible things, including sacrifice his own daughter to prove himself worthy of these mass murders, uh, 
Now, now, uh, Agamemnon is simply this great man, this slaughtered hero for whom we have this enormous uh, 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 respect and affection and reverence, including the ritual lament of, uh, of uh, Orestes and Electra and Pylades. And not only that, they want to summon his aid by raising his ghost. Unfor- and, you know, this would have been some scene, by the way. I mean, if, mm. But uh, Aeschyl- Aeschylus, uh, fortunately, uh, contents himself. The spirit of Agamemnon is definitely raised. He is definitely present in the killing of, uh, of Clytemnestra. But they have taken the uh, – <laughs> Clytemnestra and Aegisthus have, have taken the wise move. They've cut off his hands and feet and uh, maybe parts of his face and stuffed them in, in his armpit before burying him. This is a, a kind of a, a uh, ritual mutilation called masculismos, which means that the dead, the, the, the dead man's spirit will not be able to rise and take revenge. So, I mean, this is forethought indeed. They know what they have done, and they know that, that, that the ghost of Agamemnon will, will, will be there to, to try to take revenge on them. In this play... More than uh, the the dead are perhaps as important as the living. There are very few uh, plays, other than you know, say horror movies, which uh, which can boast something like this. And in fact, the most the most chilling line in the in the play, in fact, that the whole trilogy, Clytemnestra says uh, or, or asks the messenger, "What's going on?" Because she hears what and what's happening, of course, is Aegisthus is being killed by Orestes. And and he says, I say the dead are killing the living. Now, this is like something out of a horror movie. People, this is Night of the Living Dead. The, the, the dead have left the grave. And, of course, what it, there are two things that are meant here. One, Orestes, it's already been reported by Orestes himself, who's pretending to be somebody else, Orestes is supposed to be dead. And in fact, Clytemnestra cannot conceal her pleasure when the announcement is made that he's dead. But uh, but also, it's not just Orestes. It's Orestes and Agamemnon and the whole bloody family. And I use the word bloody advisedly. The whole bloody family, all of them in their graves, are to some extent participating in this ritual killing of the evil woman. Well, for all that, does that solve our problems, Doctor Fleming? <laughs> which 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 problem is that? <laughs> Kill, does killing her close the circle? Does that fix this family problem? And I, again, I'm thinking back to our listeners might be thinking of our explication of um, the the Sophocles play, uh, the Oedipus cycle, and and how you know. That it wasn't solved uh, at the end uh, when when he discovered who he was. That there was there wasn't a solution there. Um, so the same sort of question: killing Clytemnestra does this solve the, the family issue? Yes. Well, we wouldn't have a third play if if it did, obviously. But uh, you know the the from the first lines of the Aristia, the the search has been for a relief from sorrow, from woe. In fact, if uh, looking at the, uh, the very first line 
the Usman Ito told Avalagain Ponon, says the, the, the guard, he says, I, uh, relief from this weary task. I am seeking relief. Now, he thinks he means he's just, he's tired of staying up all night waiting for the, for the, for the fire signal. But in fact, the Apalage Ponon, uh, relief from sorrows, from labors, this is what, uh, they are seeking in all three plays. And of course, in the, in the, in the great ode in the beginning of the Agamemnon, of course, they, they have a refrain. I lodon, I lodon, todeo nikato. Alas and alas, may the, may the good prevail, may the good conquer, may the good prevail. In other words, let, 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 may right turn out to, 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 uh, to, to, to come out on top. Well, it does, and that's what that's what the chorus wants in the first play. It doesn't happen. Agamemnon's murdered, and chaos results. Civil war, virtually a contest within the within the uh, within the city. Now we have we have tyrants. We have usurpers who are ruling the city, and who have driven the the, the son and heir into exile, uh, and 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 treat and mistreated poor Electra, who's not allowed to marry. She's not allowed to have a normal life because she would then beget an heir who would have to take revenge for Agamemnon. So the whole world's upside down. Orestes and the others pray at the end of the play of the Coifery, may this bring an end to our sorrow. Unfortunately, just as they say that, Orestes begins to notice things. He begins to see that there are there are creatures that you normally don't see, that there are these revenge demons, the Furies, the Erinues. And he says, ye handmaidens see them yonder like gorgons. They're wrapped in sable garb, entwined with snakes. I can no longer stay. So, uh, the obviously it is it is not over. And in fact, we have only entered a more intense phase of this this terrible search for justice. But we're but we're wading through blood uh, to find justice, to find this relief for which apparently there there it's impossible. It it is it, as long as all we have is this contest among violent men there and and violent women. There 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 is no relief possible. Well, that gets us into the third play, Dr. Fleming, and we move from murders in palaces to courtroom drama. <laughs> uh, now, obviously, we can't uh, go into the whole play as we haven't in, in all of our uh, discussions about these plays, but can you talk about why the decision, well, first of all, explain to our listeners what happens in this last play in terms of how the court the court drama is set up and, and how that gives us insight into Athenian democracy. Yeah. But following on from that, why is this decision the best of all possible decisions? Yeah. Or, or is it? Yeah. The, um, so we're, we, we begin to play with the dilemma. Orestes has gone mad. That is, you know, we would say that uh, if somebody has been involved in a violent incident, he's, you know, you're suffering from post-traumatic shock. Well, he has an extreme version of post-traumatic shock. That is, he actually sees himself being persecuted 
and hounded across the face of the earth by these these creatures that are born from the drops of blood of his murdered mother. And, I mean, this is, from a rational point of view, we would say, you know, he's suffering from psychotic delusions, you know, and, and, and that he, he needs to be healed. In the Greek world, the way to be healed from this sort of psychosis, which is, by the way, extremely real condition for, uh, for them, uh, they believed in blood guilt and, and, and just as much as the Montenegrins did. So there's this tremendous psychic burden on the, on the part of Orestes. So he goes around the world seeking, in the traditional legend, he seeks to be purified. This may not be true in the Homeric version because there doesn't seem to be a strong sense of uh, blood guilt in Homer. And it's certainly not, not, there's no hint of it in the, in the, in the Iliad, really. So Orestes has to be, what you do is you go to a king and, and you go to a, you get a rich, you, and he, he goes through a, some sort of ritual bathing, or you could be bathed in blood. There are a variety of, of different ways it could be done. And it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So finally, he goes to uh, Delphi, where uh, the Delphic Oracle is located, who is a priestess of Apollo who gives riddle, riddling answers to questions and dilemmas, and, uh, and these then are translated into, into hexameter Greek uh, poetry and handed out to the faithful who come. And, but So he comes seeking for help from Apollo, but the Furies have followed him right there, and, and in fact, when uh, they've been sleeping, and he, uh, they, they're, you know, they're tired of, they're like, they're described as hound dogs, they're bloodhounds, seeking, seeking him all over the, uh, the world. You know, by the way, what a bloodhound in English, in traditional English, the name of a bloodhound that goes on the track of blood to find a murderer, you know what that's called? Mm-mm. A sleuth. Hmm. So the, the, the sort of semi-comical term in English, uh, in English crime fiction for the detective, the sleuth, is uh, that's what it comes from. Just a little side benefit from <clears throat> listening to these broadcasts. Um, so the Apollo says, I will be with you. I will stay with you. Now, remember, Apollo's in a funny position because Apollo is guilty of blood guilt. He, when he came to possess, when he came to Delphi, there was a sacred dragon called the Python, which is why the why 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 it's called the Veil of Pytho, why the priestess is called the Pythia. He killed this divine being in order to dispossess him and take hold of Delphi and use it as the center of his uh, prophetic work. So Apollo himself. Can be can be plausibly accused, and this is alluded to. He can be plausibly accused of being of uh, being guilty of, of this. And in fact, uh, in the story of uh, Alcestis, a uh, wonderful play by Euripides, the first uh, the first play we have of Euripides, um, he, uh, Apollo had had been condemned to serve a mortal man to work off his guilt to humiliate him. So he had to work for Admetus of Pheri, a Thessalian a Thessalian prince. And Admetus treated him so well that Apollo has then stuck by him and become his faithful friend. 
so uh, but 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 here we have the anticipation of that story because it because Apollo himself siding with Orestes but himself is not perhaps entirely pure because again the the, the displacement of a of a kind of earth demon this 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 the serpent or dragon that had lived there by the Olympians this is a, a symbolic of a transition from a more primitive, violent order rooted only in the laws of blood to uh, to a higher conception of, of duty and obligation and justice, which is the justice of Zeus, which is so celebrated in the great ode on Zeus in the, in the Agamemnon. Zeus is talked about in language which would mostly have pleased uh, an Old Testament prophet. So uh, what's going what's to happen? Well, what he has to do, Orestes is told, he must go to the hill of Ares in Athens. Now, obviously, Aeschylus is a hometown patriot, so this, uh, he has to be uh, – the, the, the solution is going to come from the Athenian commonwealth. And, uh, but rather than coming from uh, a king – or you know uh, from 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 uh, the Athenian monarchy, which would certainly in legend have been in place. The 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 family of Theseus would have been in power, but instead it, it they go to the hill of Ares, the Areopagus, which of course many uh, many centuries later was visited by Saint Paul. Now the reason for this is that uh, there had been a, a, a huge ref, uh, reform or transition of the Athenian constitution. The, the Council of the Areopagus was one of the older institutions within the Athenian law and politics, and it consisted of former archons. Now, every year, these archons are partly – they're selected by, the, by uh, voting districts or tribes on the one hand, but then drawn – their names are drawn by lot. Originally, they had been elected, or whether directly by the tribes or however, but they were very powerful. Now, at, the, at this point, after these so-called reforms have taken place, the, the office of archon becomes less and less important because anybody can become any, – any normal, respectable person can become archon. And the, the, the higher officers were ge- – the generalships, which had to be uh, – which were elected by, by the people, and therefore they had more political power. And so one of the real dilemmas of the play for a modern critic is – why is he tried by the court of the Areopagus when the Areopagus has been reduced in scope by democracy? And, he, and uh, well, one of the answers to anticipate the conclusion is because Aeschylus does not think that's a great idea. So he's standing up for this traditional – it's like the House of Lords. It's a traditional bastion of, conser- of conservatism within the Athenian uh, commonwealth. So the trial is, is, will take place in front of these former archons, these distinguished uh, people in Athens. And so on the one hand, you have the Furies who are prosecuting. On the other hand, you have Apollo, who is the defense lawyer, and uh, more or less supposed to be above the fray is the goddess Athena because this is the city of Athena and these are her people. The when the the, the the trial begins, the uh, uh, it's just one question for as far as the uh, the uh, Erinues, the Furies are concerned. Did you kill her or did you not kill her? 
Because in uh, early Greek law, as in early Jewish law and early Germanic and Celtic law, that is the question. That's the only question. Did you kill this person? Right. Not, 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 right. not what was your motive, what was your justification, was it self-defense, were you under a delusion? No. The fact of killing is all that matters. And so they say, well, we won. Right. We won. The, the prosecution rests. Yeah. That's all. That's all we have to prove. Well, there's there's uh, a bit more to that, and the Furies, as the as the play gets, as the action gets heated up, they become, and uh, not to say, furious. That is, they say, all right, you young gods, you know, Zeus, Apollo, Athena, you are trampling, you are down on our sacred duty. We have a duty to pursue. Uh, to pursue murderers, to to to, uh, to punish uh, the crime of homicide, to get revenge, and you are taking that away from us. We will curse this city if we do not get the if you do not get the verdict on our hands. We are not going to help you. Women will bear their children stillborn. There will the crops will fail. The cattle will die in a plague. It's really, I mean, it's it's a, it's something. It's a horrifying prediction, and we know that they have the power to uh, carry out their threat. They are these are they may be ugly. They may be horrifying, as horrifying as blood revenge itself is. But they are they are also the real thing. Athena loves Athens, and this is the last thing in the world she wants to happen. So Athena calls on a the, the peculiar virtue, the peculiar skill of a republican society, and that is persuasion, not coercion, persuasion. Please listen to me, she says. Let me explain to you. You will be honored here beyond Anywhere in the world, you will be incorporated into our society. We will have festivals to 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 honor you, and they keep on, and they, they just keep on repeating their threats, like 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 spoiled and like you know angry women. Well, it's interesting when she first makes her argument, they they simply repeat their chorus as if they yes. didn't even hear her. Yes, they say it word for word, like they just run right over what she said. Exactly. It's sort of like Gilbert and Sullivan, you know, where uh, <laughs> they, the, the chorus uh, uh, keeps on it keeps on uh, Oni Bickery Shockery too, or whatever in the Mikado. They are they are they are not listening. And finally, they say, "Will you say you will do all this for us? You will honor us in this way?" And the and they are persuaded. Now Athena, of course, has cast her vote with Orestes. Now there's a there's a there's a there's a philological problem here. There's a big debate as to whether whether the jury uh, is is a hung jury and then Athena sides with it, or uh, if it's a, a jury in which there's one vote for on the side of the Furies, but Athena adds in her vote, and which makes it a hung jury, which means he gets off. Now <clears throat> the latter is more probable under Athenian law. However, under uh, the rules of drama, I think to me it's almost certain. The point is, it's a hung jury; it's fifty-fifty, and it takes divine intervention to uh, to get Orestes off without alienating these terrible powers of revenge. So, in the end, of course, they are given a procession 
which is something like it's it's remember we something like the Panathenaic procession to honor the goddess Athena, in which resident aliens were uh, were allowed to take part. So they become metoikoi. You know, they've they've got a a resident status with legal protections. They're part of the Athenian Commonwealth now. They're not outsiders coming in to terrify the the, the poor, honest folk in their in their bed. Now, the standard interpretation for about 150 years has been this. The old order represented by the Furies and represented by the by the, the forces of night and chaos and violence and, and blood revenge. These have been displaced by the Olympians. And the Furies are defeated, and at the very end there is a festival of light and joy and rationality, and the for, forces of light have been have defeated the forces of darkness in a kind of uh, primitive morality play. The trouble with this is it's absolutely contradicted by the text. The Furies have said what they will do if they are not honored, and they mean to carry it out. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And so if, if you wanted to reduce the last play to a very simple element, <clears throat> to a simple formula, it's, a, it's this. You can make a, a, a political and judicial system more humane, more just, more fair, more rational. But if you ever take from the law, the terror of the law, the, the acknowledgement of kinship as the driving force within society. And by the way, Athenian society is organized according to fratries and deems and kin groups, the gene. The, 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 it's a kin based society as much as, say, 17th century uh, Scottish Highlands. <clears throat> so. You cannot overturn these old laws, these old forces, these old institutions, these old demons. They have to be incorporated. As you reform your commonwealth, you can never turn your back on the old laws of blood. And if you do, you will suffer the penalties which uh, the Furies have threatened and in which, of course, modern states from Sweden to the United States are all suffering exactly. We don't have babies anymore in the way we're supposed to. We have children who uh, who disobey and murder their parents. We have uh, we we eat poisonous foods. The ground is poisoned. All our uh, human human relations between the sexes poisoned. It, this play is very prophetic for what happens to a people when they turn their backs on what a sweet old song called the fundamental things of life as time goes by. Hmm. <clears throat> well, and now I suppose this election is being haunted by the ghost of Vince Foster and, and all those other people. Uh, <laughs> but um, All friends of Bill. <laughs> well, as I, as I said to our listeners, Dr. Fleming, there's a lot more that we could get into. Uh, you could spend a, an entire... Uh, day talking about the Oristia, but what we were hoping to accomplish, and I think that we did in this two-part miniseries, is a broad overview of the major themes and the reason why this is such an enduring and important play. Um, The last question I have, obviously, to relate to the idea of Christianity and classical culture is that resolution that we have with Athena and the Furies is that, obviously, uh, there's, as you say, the idea of the hung jury and Athena casting this vote, but the Christian answer to revenge is to turn the other cheek. This is obviously a completely different planet from the ones that the the Greeks would inhabit. 
Is do you feel not entirely? That's how I was going to ask you. Do you feel that it would be considered an entirely different planet? And I'm asking that in context from the 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 sermon Saint Paul gave about the unknown God. How far away is this bridge? The the it is uh, it is not it, it, we are by no means so far removed. You know, the teachings of our Lord on how to treat an enemy all have to do with the kind of personal enemy you make over a property dispute or an inheritance dispute in a Jewish village or a Greek village. You know, it has nothing to do with Attila the Hun coming in, raping, murdering and burning. There, there is there, absolute because people who take to misinterpret the teachings on forgiveness and on turning the other cheek. Uh, also, they don't be- they don't believe in the death penalty. They don't believe, and so many of them don't believe in even taking up a sword in order to protect your family against uh, uh, against an uh, uh, an alien aggressor who's 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 trying to bash through the gates so we can take everything you have. This is a is not only is it a distortion of the teachings of the church and Christ and the apostles. It is a reversal. It is an absolute reversal. Paul says very famously in Romans 13, not in vain does the ruler hold the sword. It is a, it is a terror not to the just but to the wicked. So, so that incorporated into the commonwealth, in this case, Paul was thinking primarily of the – in fact, almost exclusively certainly of the Roman Empire in the way that, uh, that Aeschylus is thinking in terms of the, the, the city of Athens, incorporated into this community – is this principle of justice, which has been handed down by the creator and entrusted to the rulers and his judges and executioners. And uh, to turn your back on that is to encourage injustice. It is to become an ally of the devil. And no argument of the devils has been more successful than the idea of non-resistance to evil. There is nothing Christian about it. There is there. It is only by a grotesque distortion, uh, by a proof texting, the way some pe- taking phrases out of context and refusing to understand that Christ came not to change, not to change the law, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the fulfillment of the law is to try to create a, a human commonwealth, a Christian commonwealth, based on principles of justice. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Doctor Fleming. Good. Um, <laughs> If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, please email Dr. Fleming at thomas at fleming.foundation. We want to remind you that Christianity and Classical Culture is a production of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. To obtain permission, please write to james at fleming.foundation. As always, thanks to our Gold and Charter members who we produce these podcasts for and who ensure that they can be produced in the first place. I want to thank Dr. Fleming for his time, and until next episode, on behalf of the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.